This is a Cherish podcast, and I'm your host, Michael Boudreau. I'll be taking you for an inside look behind the glamorous facade of the interior design industry. At a time when every aspect of the business, from sourcing to trends to marketing to dealing with clients, is undergoing rapid change. Design has long had a problem with diversity and inclusion. The summer of 2020 threw a harsh light on how far the design industry, among others, had not come and made clear that good intentions are no longer good enough. The long-simmering frustrations of Black designers, architects, editors, and makers were finally acknowledged, and the design industry is being called to account. Among the most powerful forces fighting for change are collectives of Black designers and artisans. One such group is the Black Artists and Designers Guild, which aims to create a more equitable and inclusive design industry while celebrating Black creativity, culture, and heritage. I am pleased to have with us today three members of the Guild. First is Melanie Barnett, who founded BADG in 2018. Melanie is an artist, a designer, a ceramicist, and an activist. Her work has appeared in numerous magazines and media outlets, and in 2019, she was declared Designer of the Year by Interiors and Sources magazine. In addition to her acclaimed ceramics, paintings, and drawings, she has also created a line of wallpapers for Lulu and Georgia. Welcome, Melanie. Thank you, Michael, for having me. So glad you're here. I'm also pleased to have with us Beth Diana Smith, a New York and New Jersey interior designer who, like a surprising number of designers, left the corporate world to pursue her passion. Her rooms are modern, luxurious, and sophisticated, full of color and pattern, and often reference a diverse range of cultures. She's also a founding member of the Black Artists and Designers Guild. Hello, Beth. Hi, Michael. Thank you for having me. So glad. And finally, we have Jomo Tadariku, an Ethiopian-American artisan based in Springfield, Virginia, who creates furniture and wood and acrylic that draws upon African shapes and forms, but gives them a distinctly contemporary edge. His stools, tables, and chairs are functional, but also have a beautiful sculptural presence, highlighting and honoring the materials from which they are made and the traditions that inspired them. Welcome, Jomo. Thanks for having me, Michael. So glad you're all here. This is something we really need to talk about, and we need to talk about it often. So, Melanie, I'd love to get a sense from you. 2018, things weren't great back then, and they didn't seem to be getting better. So what was the motivating factor for you to form the Black Artists and Designers Guild? Well, Michael, the idea around the guild, it was an idea that had been brewing in me for a long time. And during that year, 2018, I was actually, I took a sabbatical from my business. So I was able to look at the industry from a different perspective. The industry events that we all know, they happen year after year, where they invite industry professionals to talk on various subjects. And one particular event, what's new, what's next? We're all in this room and we are very familiar with it. Very. The panel didn't have not a single Black artist, designer, or industry-related professional on a panel, a part of the event. And it was brought to my attention from a colleague, and I thought to myself, and this was in 2018. This is in 2018. Yeah, shocking. And I graduated college in 1996 from FIT, and I was the only Black designer in my class. And so I thought to myself, we're still having this issue. We're still being challenged by the same messages 
that our voices don't matter, our, our representation doesn't matter, and our presence doesn't matter. And I thought to myself, you know, it's time for me to voice out my opinions around it to see what the community says. And I use social media to start Instagram. I had an audience and I decided to create a post around it. And from there, many people started to chime in, industry and non-industry, editors of magazines, from salespeople, everyone related, admitting how complicit they were and the inequities in the industry and saying they need to do better. And so from there, I said, okay, my mother always taught me to work with what you have, right? And I knew a lot of people. And I've traveled around the world. I've traveled throughout the diaspora. And every time I would travel, I would connect with different artisans. And I decided to call out to all my friends in the industry and say, hey, let's get, let's get together and create our own space where we could be celebrated and create a directory. And so when, we, when there are opportunities for us to work and collaborate, and if other industry-related members were, are interested in working with us, there's no excuse that we don't exist. Right. And so that is how the directory started on November, the end of November, 2018. Fantastic. Now, Beth, what inspired you to get involved? I mean, I'm sure you never face any discrimination at all, right? But (laughs) (laughs) Never, ever, ever. Um, It was for all the reasons that Melanie said. I remember that what I would call infamous social media post like it was yesterday. I think I recently had the conversation with another designer about this post because even though it's 2018 like we are we still need to have those conversations today i think it's important i carry myself in my personal and professional life very unapologetic in my blackness and you see that in my design and through my personal and professional experiences where i wasn't pleased with being the only black face in the room or I've heard people use derogatory terms. I thought it was very important to one, be a part of this cause and make sure that the generations behind us don't have to keep fighting the same issue. Yeah. Yeah. And Jomo, when did you join and was it much the same for you, the impetus? Yes. I mean, my story is no different than Beth or Mulaney. I remember Melanie reaching out saying what she wanted to do, trying to find the guild. And my quick answer to that was yes, because my experience, and I graduated school in 93. Again, I'm also the only black designer back then who graduated. And throughout the years, and as a furniture designer attending a lot of um, industry events, I could be one of few walking the floors of these amazing events. But... I wouldn't again and again see a no exhibitor that's a black designer. And that change has been bugging me. I've reached out to other black design institutions, uh, organizations trying to see if if we could do something about it. And that never happened. And I really like the way Melania approached it. And I've said this to her before. Some tend to do the annual conference and forget the problem, you know, 300 plus days of the year and worry about it for five or four days of a conference. And the way the Guild approached it was to be active all the time and not once a year or every six months. And it was a different way to approach the problem and it worked. So uh, getting me on board was easy. Right. And Melanie, how is it? I'm curious about day to day because as we all know, you know, especially in our industry, things come in and out of fashion. So how do you keep that presence, because what the other thing that impressed me so much about all of your work is that it all has 
references to African art and African textiles and African culture, but it's all very contemporary. And I think that a lot of people don't realize how vital and intermixed with our, our meaning Western culture, African art has always been. But so I'd love to get a sense, even on a day-to-day basis, of how the Black Artists and Designers Guild works. Well, the Guild, we're a member, action-oriented mm-hmm. group. I mean, our mission, we're focused on our mission. We aim to advance a, a community of Black makers. We uh, focus on building equitable and, and inclusive spaces. And we invest in our ancestral futures. And so when, knowing that that's just the core of our mission, it allows us to continue to create programming or opportunities with it because they're all interchanged with each other. Um, We created our own project, uh, the Badge Lab, which is Obsidian, which is our legacy project, really focusing on creating a space for members to have the freedom to create based on Black life and the wellness of Black families. And that was the first iteration of our, which Obsidian is a virtual concept house. Right. And so and you worked with Hearst on that, the Hearst Shelter yes, Magazine. Yes, we worked that. with Hearst. They were one that, of yeah. our, exactly, one of our partners. And so because we're member driven and, and focused, it allows us the flexibility to create whatever we want. And that is what Badge is about, is about empowering also our members to realize we don't have to wait for anyone or any industry to create what we need for ourselves. I want the audience to understand that Badge is a nonprofit. We are mm-hmm. a 501c3 organization. Very And that point. we operate based on donations. One of my dreams for Badge is that we want to partner with every industry, institution, organization who is interested in what we have to offer. My work is grounded in who I am as mm-hmm. an African-American woman, as a Caribbean diaspora woman, a child of Caribbean immigrants. My work is constantly connecting to my ancestors. And that's what we call Sankofa moments. And what I mean by Sankofa is we cannot go forward unless we go back. And so mm-hmm. my work is constantly a dance between the past and the present. And the past has been the foundation for how we all create. And so my work is constantly paying homage and Badge is doing that too, by constantly paying homage to the ancestors. Because if it wasn't for our ancestors, we would not be on this podcast with you today or mm-hmm. we would not be in the positions that we are today. And so when people ask about how do we continue, this is our life. And when you think about what brings you joy in your life, there's no question of how you continue, you just do. And so the Guild is continuing to create that space for our members to feel empowered no matter what space they're in, that they could show up who they are unapologetically. And that's what Beth was talking about, too, when she's talking about her Blackness. There's multiplicities of it, and it comes in so many different forms. And the Guild is really about representing all of it from the creative side, from the physical side, from the gender side. There's just so many different aspects. And it won't take any of our lifetimes to see it all. And that's, ah, please. And, and that's the beauty of what we're doing. We're building a, a foundation around design and art and knowing that this is not something that's going to stop because guess what, Michael, it's always been around us. It's just that many have not paid attention or respected right. or, you know, or given its due notice. And still don't. Uh, Beth, I wanted to ask you, because one of the things that I think is so great about the organization is I'm sure that you've it's helped you to discover other talented people who work you use in your own work. I mean, and that you inspire each other. So, you know, how does that work? Are you still looking for new members? How many members are there in Badge at the moment? 
We have a hundred, a little 100, over a hundred okay. members. Yeah. And, and people apply. Cause I'm sure hopefully some yeah. of our listeners will want to become part of this because yes. I think it's a, it's people a great apply. thing. Okay. They can go to our website, badguild.info. Right. Exactly. I mean, I've been on the website and it's stunning the range of stuff that you guys have. And I just love to get a sense. Do you have meetings or is it virtual? I mean, obviously with COVID, it, that screwed up everything in all of our lives. But do you have meetings? How, how do you find out what's going on? Yes, I believe that started probably the month or the month after we started lockdown. So March of last year. And I feel like that was almost like a, a pivotal moment for Badge because we got to see each other's faces. It became learning opportunities. I got to see the work of so many other artists and designers outside of just going through Badge's beautiful website is, is always great. But being able to see everyone's process has been really, really helpful. So I've discovered a lot of great artists and creators and even other designers who work that um, I love through that. There's also outside of Obsidian, there are going to be, I'm going to say are going to be, I'm going to ignore the pandemic for a second. Mm-hmm. Um, there, you Hopefully know, there we are can panels. soon. <laughs> right. <laughs> there were events. There was a, an amazing holiday party at Keisha Franklin's. I think we celebrated. Was that the one year anniversary? Yeah, that was of the one that? year. Yes. Panel discussions, events, there there were always these things that we constantly got to see each other. And I think one of the main elements that came out of that, it, became, it felt like a family and a community, which was amazing during, during that time where we all needed it. Right. And Jomo, have you found that people have discovered your work? Because I have to say, honestly, I was not familiar with your work until the whole idea of this podcast came up. And I it just blew me away when I went on your website and went on. It's it's just beautiful. Um, and, you know, there's, I mean, one of my favorites is a chair that's sort of a version of the African pick, you know? Yeah, um, yeah. I, I love that. I mean, and then the gazelle chair, your work is beautiful, but are people discovering it through Badge? Yes, I mean, um, I would hope. I think, and again, I've, I've I've said this within our own guild community, the attention to my work definitely has gone higher and higher by the month since we've started the guild. There's still ways to go, but you know, I've reached a point where I have four or five museums who have acquired my work as part of their permanent collection. It's kind of, if you asked me a year ago, that that was unthinkable. Maybe. It was a wish when I hit 70 or 80, God willing, you know, to have my work accepted in this space. So other than discovering, like Beth said, other amazing designers and artists within our community, one of the best things I've found was finding mentorship. Yes, right now, 53, but, you know, I'm not ashamed to say or to go to this guild family and say, look, I don't understand you interior designers. You got to break it down for me because it's been one of my struggles. It's a struggle to get into the industry, just generally speaking. But you know what? It was that kind of an open family where we brought our problems and struggles up front. And to be able to find a mentor that pretty much, you know, I can, uh, on a 911 call, I can reach out. And I was so happy last week when the Met actually did the... uh, the inaugural reception that he was there was, you know, the reason we have this family. And I, you know, with the limited amount of guests I can invite, I invited what I, who I could, uh, but. This was the opening for the Afro, for the Afro futurist. Yeah. Which I have not yet seen, but I'm very excited. Uh, You have to. Uh, Um, Don't worry. I will. 
I go, <laughs> I go to the matter all the time. So um, cool. I'm very excited. But Melania, I'd like to ask you, you, you mentioned how one of the sparks for this whole thing was that, you know, there no black people on a panel. And I wish I could say that that doesn't happen anymore. I think there is more awareness. Things have changed a lot since, you know, George Floyd's murder and the Black Lives Matter. Thank God. But do you still try and hold the industry's feet to the fire? I mean, do you reach out to like what's new, what's next or High Point or LCDQ and remind them? I, how does that work? Do you guys just talk it up? Is it like because I think sometimes you really have to smack people upside the head a little bit to get them to think in a different way. Well, I'll tell you, uh, Michael, the, the Guild is not about trying to continue to convince the importance of our presence and what we do. That's not the work of the Guild. And we're very clear about that because being in our position um, where we have grown and, and we're born into the systemic problems that weren't created by us, and we are in a space that we're continuing having to figure out to navigate, and that is not the job for Badge. Now, these institutions, uh, when I call institutions, these shows and all of these events that are well aware of the problem. They didn't want to speak to us before George Floyd's murder, just so you know. Because before that, before that happened, there were very few industry organizations, professionals who wanted to support Batch. And it wasn't until after we had to lose another Black body in order for people to wake up. And so... We understand living in a black body. We understand that there are these moments of awareness and the ideas of how long is it going to last? That's the question that we constantly ask. Right? right. And so, again, we know one incident is not going to change a systemic problem that we're dealing with. OK, because what you what people have to understand is that the only way true change will truly happen is when there is an inclusive space to have the change. These organizations are not inclusive from the beginning. So the ideas of the representation will come and go in conversations because the representation is not in par a part of the decision-making, it's not part of the planning, and it's not part of the execution on a consistent basis. So when you have that inequity, Michael, you're going to have these ups and flows. Yes, one event, they may get it right quote unquote. And when right. I say that, right. And then you'll have another event. We're like, oh, well, and this is recent, a recent issue, an event where, oh, well, we tried. But see, again, didn't try very hard. <laughs> yeah. Because remember, the, the institution didn't set a new foundation of right. how they're going to operate. Right. Because there's no such thing of try if you've made a manifesto for your organization. This is how we roll. But the problem is they have not declared that. And the thing is, when you've declared the foundation and the manifesto and the mission of the organization, nothing will stray you from fulfilling that mission. Mm -hmm. And so if it's not at the center of every decision, you're going to have these loopholes. And that is not the work for Badge to solve. Right. Right. That is not right. Why do you that have to overcompensate for yeah. other people's We are failings. spending our right. time centered on us. And what we need to do to fulfill our joy, to navigate the systemic issue, which we know is in the industry and outside of the industry. So it's not just that we wake up in design and have to deal with it. We wake up every right. day having to deal right. with it, with everything. Right. And so 
That's why badge is important for us because our creativity feeds our soul. One of the things I, I, I really stress with our members that nobody, nobody or no situation, institution, or even a systemic problem should take away your joy. Right. Right. And, and so, your creativity. I mean, you're, exactly. you're creative people, all of you. Beth, I'd love to get a sense from you as an interior designer. How do people approach you? Like, are, are most of your clients black? Do you feel you're being considered by clients who are not black or other ethnicities or nobody wants to be a token? And how do you break out of that? Do you think that's happening? I mean, Certainly the media, I think, is paying a lot more attention to Black creative people. But has that changed your client mix? I do appreciate a straightforward question. So thank you for that. Most of my clientele historically has been Black and it continues to be Black. I can honestly say I find absolutely no issue with it. I actually love it. No, then um, that's great. But, you know, you're a super talented designer and, you know, People should be aware of your work and considering you when they're thinking about who to choose to do their home. I a thousand percent agree. I can say and some of my personality is brutally honest and my clients, all of my clients are very aware of that. So I have this conversation with them. I've had, for instance, I've had a mixed race couple who's a repeat client, though wife is black the husband is white and we still it doesn't change my process regardless of the race of my client their home still has to be reflective of who they are so i'm taking her history i'm taking his history and then i'm taking their combined history and the things that they love and things they want to be inspired by now i can potentially maybe understand if a potential client that was white saw my work and they may think, oh, she may only have this quote unquote black aesthetic. And I'm putting it that way because that's sometimes how. Yeah. Unfortunately, that's how some people would think of it. And a black right. aesthetic. It's like, well, what are right. But, 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 but also, I'm sorry, I want to interject. It's not even about the thinking because there's nothing wrong with the black aesthetic, but right. no one gets questioned when it's the French aesthetic. Right. No one gets questioned right. when it's the British aesthetic. And that's where the problem is. Totally. You know, Absolutely. We, we have an aesthetic that's just not, it's not supported by this industry. It's not celebrated. And so it gets questioned. And that's right. part of the Absolutely. systemic problem. Right. This is the result of the systemic problem that we all are in. Right. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think they may see that and think, oh, she may not be capable of anything else. But the one thing I have learned throughout my years, and this is my second career, is I learned this in my prior career in corporate. I will not ever convince anyone about my intelligence or my talent. I'm going to just show you. Right. And if you do not trust me to do that, it's always going to be your loss. It's how I kind of view it. It makes gives me a very peaceful existence when I feel as though I don't have to prove myself to anyone else. So to to Malini's point, it, I feel, really feel like it's it's just that simple. I can't make you appreciate my work. I appreciate my work. My clients appreciate right. my work. I do hope that I'm able to increase the overarching diversity of my client base but if throughout well, that's how your problem 
yeah, it's not my problem. Like if right. the rest, right. if all of my clients until the day I say I'm retiring from all things, the majority of my clients have to be are black beautifully. Right. That's just what it is. Right. Right. Hi, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you're enjoying our podcast. My name is Anna Brockway, and I'm the co-founder and president of Cherish. If you're a designer who's struggling with long lead times from suppliers and increasingly impatient clients, now is the time to shop with us. Our vintage antique and one-of-a-kind inventory is ready to ship right now. To learn more, visit Cherish.com. That's C-H-A-I-R-I-S-H.com. And now back to the show. And Jomo, do you feel the same in terms of your furniture? Because I mean, you know, I, I think your furniture could work in virtually anyone's home. I mean, it's just stunning. But has most of your people who bought your work have been black? Is that do you feel? Um, no, it may, I, I have a very wide range of uh, oh, clientele from black designers, black art collectors, white, Asian, I, for the Again, the way I have approached, um, my design is unabashedly African. Everything mm-hmm. is based on Africa. Uh, born in Kenya, but was raised mm-hmm. in Ethiopia. So I, plus well-traveled, my parents also were well-traveled. So this sense of my African pride was, you know, embedded in me as a, as a kid by the objects that I've seen. So I, I'm not trying to be the next Hans Wegener here. I love right. his work, but the goal is not right. to be another Scandinavian designer. Right. Uh, well, I think, like Malini has said, I think the uh, the design language that I grew up with by looking at what craftspeople have done in the continent of Africa and within the areas that I grew up have been relegated as something that only craftspeople can do or it is done using found objects or recycled, upcycled. And there is this myopic view of what an African design is, and that's the thing I'm battling with, just bringing my own interpretation. Some other designer can do their Mm -hmm. own. I'm just saying this is me, and this is how I wanted to define my design career. And as an industrial designer, I bring that into my design process. As a former somebody who went to school to study art, I bring that in. My childhood uh, a bringing is brought into it's all a mix of this and it is kind of also like take it or leave it type of thing i'm not right. going to change something because oh you say oh it's african right. and, and and just like most designers what i want is our design language and vocabulary to be added to the canon of design where including this show at the met Afrofuturism is, for example, not listed as one of the design movements. If you look at the Vitra uh, book on furniture design, there's Mm -hmm. 81 styles they've listed and none of them actually relate to what black people have contributed when it comes to design. So for me, it is making sure this generation leaves something for the next one and we're doing our part. I'm doing my part and if it fits within your uh, design language when you're doing interiors, great. If it doesn't, yeah. that's fine. If you like right. it because it's African and you're emotionally attached, because you're emotionally attached to the continent, even better. Because I've seen people get emotional when they see my objects, other than just saying, wow, a black designer actually did this. But I'm referencing right. Africa as part of you know, your home. When you come from work, that space is you. That's that's right. a, that's not an office space. Right. You want to say, I want to rest, relax. This is a reflection of me. And if I'm 
I'm giving you those objects and you can emotionally connect to them, great. If it is emotional and design where you're connecting with them, even better. So it, it, I think it fulfills the need of different segment of the population. And it, it's been great when people from different areas uh, or upbringing look at my work and enjoy it. Of course, it gives me great satisfaction. Right. Believe me, I totally understand all of you saying, you know, like your attitude of like, take it or leave it. You know, you are who you are. You're super talented, all of you. But maybe because I'm an editor and I would like, you know, my opinion matter. I want more people to take it and not leave it. So is this something that Badge Mulaney thinks about? Like, I do think the press is more willing in the last couple of years to showcase black talent, make it part of the dialogue. Is that something you think is going to just gradually evolve? Because you guys, you know, your hundred members are all supporting each other, inspiring each other, working together. Do you see that changing? Well, the press has changed since last year, Michael. To be yeah, honest, yeah, I know it's I know it's recent. Believe pre- me. Pre- press is not our issue. That's right. not the issue. Right. Um, press is just one part of the mm-hmm. equation. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we need uh, we need people to be educated. Number mm-hmm. one, we need people to own up to their part in creating this inequitable space. Right. And the press can you know? help with that. Well, the press the press can help, but the mm-hmm. press is uh, you know. One of the things that I, I realized, even when I was on sabbatical, how we've created this industry where we're relying on these sources mm-hmm. that are not providing the educational sec- section sector right. that we need. Right. right. It, it is more about an aesthetic look, right? And how things look pretty. But this problem and what we're dealing with is so much deeper than putting one black designer in a magazine. Totally. That is that that is not going to change the issue. So it's a, if, if we're talking about like changing issues, it's not about the press. Right. You right. know, it's so much deeper. Right. But one of the things that really struck me was how you started Badge basically through an Instagram post. Yeah. And the I'm social right. media, yes. which is, you know, maybe it's the press of the 21st century or whatever. That is incredibly important. And I'd love to get a sense of how you continue to work with social media because... I mean, A, you had struck a nerve, but B, you were able to strike that nerve widely with so many people through Instagram. Because and I find that fascinating. The difference, Michael, as we all know, is when we are on social media, we have a direct access to one our community. To right. There is no gatekeeper involved. Right. And that is right. the difference. Right. When we're dealing with media, we still yeah, have like to go editors to the like channels. me. My That's new right. I'm useless. I'm in the way. That's right. <laughs> I've come to terms with that. <laughs> you got it. And guess what? How many how many outlets are out there? They folded like crazy. I know. So that's why we can't rely and wait on press. Right. No, I get it. You know, it has changed, Michael. Granted, many of our members have been featured in ways they've never been featured before. Mm -hmm. We cannot deny that. Mm -hmm. But I also don't want us to rely on it as a litmus test of, oh, things have changed. Right. Okay. Right. And it's you don't need that outside validation. You guys are validating each other, inspiring That's each right. other, working together. And that yeah. is what's so impressive. I, I mean, I honor see, and celebrate that. You see, Michael, what happens is when you when you know yourself and you, you're unapologetic about who you are, you don't need press for validation. You don't need any award. You don't need any of that stuff because what has happened is that we have worked, our, we've created businesses or careers around these accolades. 
And we forget about mm-hmm. the work, about doing the work that right. we want to do. Because what happens is we start to change the way we do work so we can get these accolades. And then what happens is the magic gets lost because when we've assimilated into what the industry has wanted. And again, when I go back to badge, badge is not about assimilation at all. It's about coming who you are, how you are, expanding upon that and not focusing on any exterior institution, media, or any of that to create and be as innovative as possible and focused. Right. And I, believe me, I salute that. But at the same time, you know, you're all working artist designers. You have to, you have businesses. Mm -hmm. And, you know, how do you sustain those businesses without spreading, getting the word out, so to speak, of what you do, who you are? I mean, it's wonderful that the, the badge has 100 members. Like, Beth, I'd love to get your take on this. Like, how do you get clients? How, is it word of mouth? I mean, every designer, every artisan has to have clients coming to them, you know? And if you finish one person's house, they may not, they may love it, but they may not do another house for another 10 years. You can't go 10 years without a client. It becomes a mix. My clients are either client referral. They follow me on social media. They've seen me on TV. They, sometimes they've seen me on you know, in a publication or mm-hmm. in a in a digital story, or they heard about me from a another designer. It's it's a bit of a a mixed bag. That's mm-hmm. actually one of the questions on my my client questionnaire. How did you how did you find me? Because right. there's so many ways, especially now with social media, and the answers now are always like across that. Sometimes they, I've had one client who's now a repeat client said, oh, I saw you on TV, but then I Googled you and then I went to your website and then I started stalking you on Instagram. <laughs> and I realized like a lot of, a lot of potential clients end up on my social media because they want to understand who you are. And that's what eventually makes them want to, want to reach out. I do think that, I agree with Mulaney that press is a part of the equation. It has become important, I realize, um, for my business because people use press and outside sources as almost like validation. Like, right. okay, I people didn't, are insecure. I didn't hear, right. Like, I didn't hear about you from a friend. Technically, you're a stranger, but I read about you and what they feel as though is this reputable source. But I think what helps keep everything grounded is like if I if I acted like press didn't exist or if I had a very, you know, tiny social media following, who would I be? And I try to be that person. Like, I just want to be myself. I want to show up for who I am as a person and who I want my brand and my business to be. And that becomes the foundation for everything that I do. And part of that is making sure that I am supportive of the people that also look like me because I can understand that things are not as easy for them because I'm in that same, in that same boat. And Joma, what about your work? How do people discover your pieces? Because I, I, I hate to say I was not familiar with them. And they just knocked me out. Thanks for that, uh, Michael. <laughs> it's been a mix. I mean, I've, I've done, I think, three to four or maybe five projects with uh, guild members. You know, show houses and uh, different type of projects where interior designers have, have used my chairs or my stools. 
there's been a mix of reach out because somebody saw my work uh, in the media or somebody from the guild referred me to a potential client or a friend. And there was once uh, data research that I did on the inequities in the uh, furniture design or the furniture world where I surveyed about 150 furniture companies. And I remember that got published and later on somebody from within MoMA saw it and kind of in a, in a slow way opened the doors for MoMA to carry the MoMA store to carry three of my pieces. So different opportunities have come from different angles. This, it's the same thing with the museum and the Met curators discovered my work when my chair got published in the New York Times and just happened to be the same week as them gathering together to put the show right now. Sometimes it's just a simple search as, you know, African furniture and just by the fact of me being in the web space for a while, then my work pops up either in the first or second page. So yeah. it's really been, you know, I, I should do what Beth is doing, asking how people found me. I don't do that all the time. The market research. <laughs> yeah, it's a small market research because if people call, I tend to ask, but if it is through email or the shopping cart, I don't. So it, it's, it's been a mix and it's been uh, slowly accelerating. That's great. Currently, I'm in grad school at Tyler School of Art, I'm pursuing my MFA in ceramics, but I don't, uh, I'm not solely focused in ceramics. I'm working in glass, I'm working in fibers. So I have Fantastic. a multidisciplinary approach to my business. I just launched that collection with Lulu and Georgia. Mm -hmm, um, which is beautiful. Wallpaper. Thank you. And so I'm really focused on building my design business through a partnership, partnering with manufacturers. Mm -hmm. You know, for a long time, for about 20 years, I've been designing rugs, um, solely focused on residential, commercial, and hospitality environments. And that's when I took the break and decided to get back to making art with my own hands. That's hence how I discovered clay. So right now I'm really focused on my schoolwork mm -hmm. and I have thesis. And so the, the design work for the business is really focused on licensing. And, you know, if a designer has a desire to create a custom carpet for one of their projects right now, people find me through Instagram someone referred them. It could be an article they read, a podcast like we're talking now. Mm -hmm. I do ask where they find me because mm -hmm. I do get emails. But to, to be honest, my, my primary focus is um, developing my voice mm -hmm. and my work in all these different materials. And I'm really excited about that. And that's one of the things you want Badge to do, clearly. Yes. Yeah. To yeah. help everybody strengthen their own vision. As you said, you know, the outside world is the outside world, right. but you have to be centered first and right. you know figure out what you want to say, what you want to make, what you want to do to put before you can put it out in the world. And I yes. think that's you know really one of the great things about Badge is that you're all supporting each other, but that you make that a primary thing because you know like you know I say you're an activist and I think of you, Melania, as an activist, but you know mm -hmm. that could be a full time job too. But you're an artist. And that's, yes. you know, that really is your full-time job. But Yes, I think they go hand in hand, you right. know, Michael. My work is a part of protest. You know, I look at my work as a as a means of protest on, mm -hmm. on many levels, mm -hmm. you know. And there's always the activist characteristics, I'll say, in my work. It doesn't like, I, I don't put it aside, you know. Right. It's not, it's, it, it truly is a not part of Not one or the me. other. Right. No, no, because everything I do has that ability. Because when I think of activism, it's it's the ability to gather people 
to focus mm-hmm. on a particular mission. And so I do have that ability to do that through my work, through organizational type work. So it's, it, they go hand in hand for me. Right, right. Beth, what would you like to see happen with Badge over the next few years? Oh, God, I feel like that's such a long list. But I definitely don't want to put anything on Melanie's to-do you list. Mean, and I don't it's want to put anything it's on mine. It's not me. It's all of us. It's all of us doing the work. You mean there's yeah, still problems? I, <laughs> I think it's a mix. I think that being a part of more events, putting on our own events, like could there be a live show house? I think would be... Mm-hmm absolutely amazing my heart flutters just thinking about it continuing to see the development of partnerships with badge and brands like what we saw with s harris Mm -hmm. and other things coming out i would love to see more of that i would love to see one-on-one mentorship with undergraduate students Badge recently launched the creative futures grant i would love to see those scholarships grow I would love to see badge plan annual summits across the globe, not us in New York, not us in LA, outside of the continental mm-hmm. United States. <laughs> she does have you being busy there, Malini. No, right? You see? <laughs> it's, a, it's a collective, y'all. It's a collective. <laughs> there are I know, I feel like there are there are so many things. Like I would love to see educational programs. I would right. love to see badge teach as an organization, like teach continuing education classes. I feel like there are so many things that can be done, but it's really time, it's resources, it's you know, everyone's availability, it's mixed. But I see there's so much more that mm-hmm. I can imagine Badge doing. And I'm sure Badge will do so much of that. I don't know if they can do that whole list in the next three years. Um, you know, I don't want to- Man's reach should exceed his grasp, right? <laughs> I can imagine a lot of that will be obtained even within like the next decade. Because I think Badge has achieved so much in a very short amount of time when, when I can think about it. Yeah, you know, we're only going to be three years old, Michael. Just no, in I December. know, you're a baby. Just, you're a yeah, daughter. Yeah, we're still <laughs> crawling. Yeah, I know. You, and it's very impressive. I'm, I mean it. And Jomo, how about you? What do you see? Because it's not easy. Whatever your ethnicity, the color of your skin or whatever, being an artisan is not easy. You know, I, I mean, and I know this, I hear from decorators all the time that there's not enough artisans. They value their artisans so highly that they, they, they can't find artisans. So what would you like Badge to do in terms of the your, you know, artisans and, and, and your work and furniture making, that kind of thing? Well, I mean, generally speaking, one thing I've noticed within the last three trying to build back my business is that the, the lack of uh, trying to find artisans, even within the U.S., mm-hmm. is, it hasn't been easy. Yeah. There's only a limited amount of them, and us designers are fighting over to find these makers and builders that that uh, practice their craft at a very high level. Within the guild, if we can bring in and introduce Black students and young Black men and women to get involved in this trade, because it's uh, for all the issues we witness, for me, it is one of the most exciting industries. I mean, I, I just left my full-time day job to pursue this full-time for the second time. 
it is because I find right. it to be, uh, you know, I can't see myself doing anything else. Yeah. Now I want others, especially younger, younger people to get involved in this. And I, mm-hmm. within the guild, we have plans to how to, to uh, cultivate this, this industry within America, because America has really lost uh, its way when it comes mm-hmm. to furniture making. I work with one amazing craftsperson, but trying to add one more is has been has been a pain because it's not easy to find one. No. Uh, and so I hope we play a role in that. Virginia, just like North Carolina, used to be one of the most um, uh, the the best place to go to get furniture done. It does not feel like that while I'm living here, yeah. Um, yeah. and it's it needs a revival. It needs a revival within our guild community and just generally in America. Right. Well, I have to say this has been so enlightening and fascinating for me. And my hope for Badge, and I'm not putting this on your list, Melanie, but (laughs) I would hope that more and more people become aware of you guys. You guys need to be part of the conversation at the table as a given. But I would encourage anybody who's listening to this to make sure to go on to the Black Artists and Designers Guild website, look at the work of the members, just be aware of how much talent is out there and what you guys are doing is so impressive. Melanie, you really sparked a big fire that is like pure and bright and clearly speaks to people's needs. And I so congratulate you for that. And I just want to thank all of you for being here today. My wonderful guests, Melanie Barnett, Beth Diana Smith, and Jomo Tariku. You've been listening to the Cherish podcast, brought to you, of course, by Cherish, which was recently voted by the readers of USA Today as the best place to shop online for furniture and home decor. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend or colleague. Or better yet, go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. We appreciate your help in spreading the word. And we would love your ideas for future episodes. Please email us at podcast at cherish.com. The Cherished Podcast is produced by Britta Muller and engineered by Hangar Studios in New York. Until next time.